are going to be in part two of the worship series. So authentic and wholehearted worship is how we relate to God in spirit and in truth. It's how we, us, the family of God, the children of God, how we relate together on honest footing with God. That's why he's so concerned about our worship. Is it our singing? Part, yes, thank you. Yes, there was somebody here last week. Yes, it does include our singing. Yes, but does it include more than our singing? Yes, it's, it is the melody of our heart. It is our heart song. It is the, uh, the way we praise with our own mouth, but it's also our actions. Yes, our, how about our attitudes? Nah. How about our lifestyle? Yes. There's many things we can use worship to describe many aspects of our life. That's why it's so important to God. Um, uh, our, the way we worship is so important to God. Um, and that's why just a larger definition is authentic and wholehearted worship. It's how we relate to God in spirit and in truth. That's why church is about word and worship. Anyone ever wonder why all we do in church is study God's word and sing songs. Well, that's maybe not all, but that's, that, that is, that's a big part of the rhythm or the, the form, the, the, the ritual of church. Well, the word gives us the platform of truth to stand on and authentic and wholehearted worship elevates us into the manifest presence of our heavenly father where we can give and receive the most perfect of all loves. We stand on truth and we lift our hands and sing into the spirit. It is, we worship in spirit and in truth. And the way we worship really is less about the paths we take. It's not, and it's more about the direction that we face. It's not about your profession. It's not about which restaurants you choose to eat after church. It is the way, the direction that you face. And we talked about standing on, if you stand on Pike's Peak in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, you can look out across the fruited plains of the Midwest, or you can look out across the deserts of Utah and Arizona. And I love the deserts, but just for the spiritual symbolism of it, worship is more about the direction that you face in facing the fruited plains of God and God's promise, no matter how far off they seem and not giving in to turn your back on the promise and just face the desert. One of our models for worship in the Bible is King David, and God uh, describes David as a man after his own heart. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I used a really bad joke last week. He screwed up royally. Over and over at the turning points in his life, he chose, yes, to turn his back on the desert and face the fruited plains of promise, no matter how far off they seemed. And during these three weeks, we are looking at three turning points in David's life and how his pursuit of God's own heart illuminates our call to worship. David, if you recall, was anointed as king by the prophet Samuel as a child in anonymity, Samuel was a prophet. He's going through the land. He's looking for the one whom God is going to show him is to be the next king. He finds himself at the house of Jesse. Jesse presents and parades all of his sons before him. And Samuel's like, these aren't them. Are there any others? 
And the phrase that Jesse uses is, well, there is the worthless one. So they call the shepherd boy the worthless one in, and Samuel says, yes, this is one. That's where that little setting is where we get God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the, at the heart. Can you imagine having a daddy wound like that? Oh, well, there's the worthless one. David was trained in wisdom and the ways of God's heart, probably not as much by his own father, but by our heavenly father as a shepherd boy caring for sheep. He experienced a promotion of sorts by King Saul as a warrior, a musician, and a wise counselor after he single-handedly slew the giant, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath. And after that, as people started to, uh, you know, uh, adore him and he was coming into favor, he came into favor with King Saul, uh, and King Saul gave him promotions of sorts, and but fortunes then soured because Saul got jealous and saw David as a threat. And so Saul ended up driving David out of the land, out of the kingdom he was supposed to become king over. Uh, He was on the run, and it cost many people their lives, including his best friend, Jonathan. Uh, And David even had the opportunity in this cat and mouse game many times to take vengeance on Saul by his own hand but he was restrained by God. And so he escaped to a cave with a bunch of outcasts who he befriended and encouraged, and they become the mighty men of David. Uh, And he's foreshadowing um, just this, uh, this amazing idea that Jesus comes to collect even people that have been thrown away by the world and redeem them to give them purpose and hope and to speak to their true identity and purpose. Well, out of the cave and with these men, David makes a peace treaty with the Philistines, the very people he made war with as an adolescent, as as a young man, right? He slays Goliath, and then years later, when he's on the run and outside his own land, his own kingdom, he makes a peace treaty with the Philistines. And I can, I can hear his thoughts, right? Well, maybe this is the way God is going to bring vengeance on Saul, and I will be able to inherit the promise, not necessarily out of pride, but he wants to see how the promise is going to come to pass. Has that ever, has that ever gone through your mind, wanting to see how looking at the things going on. How is God going to bring this promise to pass? Have you been waiting in faith for anything out there? Hello. But on the eve of war, where the Philistines are about to make war against Saul, the king of the Philistines calls David and a few of his leaders, and he says, we've got a problem. The other commanders and the other governors, they're not so hot with you joining because we know that deep down, you're still one of them. And so he ends up, even in that, without a people. And he's going home, having no alliance with that who's going who's gonna to make war against his enemy, Saul. And he goes home to Ziklag, the place where they're encamped, and he sees pillars of smoke 
But these aren't the the pillars of smoke that God is leading him by. These are the pillars of smoke from his own encampment burning because the Amalekites had come and set fire to everything he owned and kidnapped his family, his wife, his sons and daughters, and the families of the men who were with him. So we looked at last week in Psalm 25, where David, instead, even his own men who wanted at that point, were talking about stoning him because they thought he was cursed by the Lord. Instead of coming to God with a list of complaints and criticisms, he runs and he wraps his arms around the legs of his heavenly father and strengthens himself in the Lord. And we read about his worship, how it confessed humility David's, David's worship, how he confessed his own humility. He put himself as the student and God as the teacher. He put himself as the child and as God as the father. He put himself as the servant and God as the Lord, even in his worship. He, his worship confessed God's goodness, his loving kindness, his tender mercies, that the ways um, of God were all true and just. And he asked, he said, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. Lead me on your path. Let me not be ashamed of you. Even when the promise seems to keep, every time I pursue and every time in my faithfulness, I think this is going to be the thing. This is going to be the step. The promise continues to get a little bit farther away, or at least it seems that way. Has anyone ever pursued a promise that every step you took, it seemed to get a little farther? And every step you took, it got even a little farther at every point. This is, what, this is the, the path that David is on. But he continues to confess God's goodness. And his worship confessed his own sin. He said, Lord, don't forget the, the sins of my youth. Even though my iniquity is great, don't hold it against me. Heal. Forgive my sin. Heal my life that I might follow after you wholeheartedly. There was this contriteness of heart before the Lord that even in his his pursuing God's heart, in his faithfulness and his obedience, there was a recognition that God is the only true good one and that we in many areas still fall short. These confessions of humility in God's goodness and his own sin brought David out of confusion and despair to a place where he could hear from God and receive direction. And so David inquired of the Lord, and he asked one question, not 50. He received an answer, and then Scripture says, David went and recovered all, and we gave praise for that. And we looked at, oh God, we want our worship to be like that. When we're faced with difficulty, with obstacles, with setbacks. Let our worship be worship that confesses humility, confesses your goodness, God, confesses our own sin. And so continuing in that history, the Philistines, who without David, they annihilated Saul's army. I mean, Saul, three of his sons, his armor bearer, and most of his men died. And so when David heard of the defeat, he rejoiced because Saul was dead. No. No, that's what we would do. That was a joke. No, that's that's what we would do. No, the scripture says that he still mourned Saul's death because he was God's anointed. And we get a foreshadow again 
Can you hear Jesus saying, and love your enemies? There was this recognition that, yes, Saul squandered many things and he fell into jealousy and pride and it costs a lot. But he was somebody that God had anointed. And so there was mourning there. So David inquired of the Lord. He headed to Judah. He is made king over the house of Judah, which is one of the, uh, the, the it was the southern part of the kingdom, one of the 12 tribes. And, uh, but just when he thinks that finally Saul's out of the way, then Abner, Saul's commander, comes in and he wrongly anoints Ishbosheth, the surviving son of Saul, as king of Israel. Another setback, which sets off seven years of civil war, manipulation, political infighting, deceit, and almost everyone who's involved in this squabbling over control ends up dead. And finally, after seven more years, all the tribes of Israel finally come together, they anoint David as king, and they re-say, they confess again what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Samuel over David back at the very beginning and says, truly, you are God's anointed, you are the, you are the king who will shepherd God's people in Israel. And David is anointed as king. David leads a conquest back to Jerusalem, drives out the Philistines, and his first act is to bring up the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And he goes back and he puts the Ark of the Covenant on the shoulders of the priests, just how they were commanded so long ago, even knowing that it will take six months to go the very short distance, six paces at a time, giving praise to the Lord. Right? That's... No? Sorry. David screws up royally again. He builds a car, a cart, an automated system to bring the presence of God more quickly to the place where it ought to be. Sometimes it's other people's sin and problems that cause setbacks like Abner, and sometimes it's our own stuff that does it. So David, wanting to take a shortcut, ends up making it the very longest of routes because moving that cart, one of the uh, people in charge of making the cart go properly touches the ark, he dies, and the ark is sidelined in the house of Obed-Edom until David finally returns months later after hearing of the goodness of God and the blessing of God in the house of Obed-Edom to do things right even in his obedience and his faithfulness to follow after God's own heart and to stay in pursuit of this promise, he still is tripped up and tries to take a shortcut right before God's bringing it to culmination. So we're going to pick up here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which is just a simple priestly garment. There's nothing salacious going on. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. 
Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house for family dinners. And then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today. Uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, Yes, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. At this turning point, this coronation of promise, this place that was supposed to be celebration, you have two totally different contracting, contrasting responses, reactions, to what is going on. And our authentic and our heartfelt worship, it does uncover some things. The way we worship does reveal some things. Most importantly, our, our authentic and heartfelt worship uncovers us from some things because many of the stuff that we clothe ourselves with is not just the armor of God, and it's not just our identity in Christ. We carry a lot more stuff. We cover ourselves with a lot more stuff than that sometimes. Do you have a sense of where I'm going with this? It is getting hot up here for me, by the way. I'm just letting you know. The first thing that worship uncovers us from is pride. Pride is our feeling of self-importance. Like it's about our accomplishments, our status, our influence, our rights, our privileges, whether we're being treated fairly. We get our due. You know, David literally and spiritually took off his royalty before God and everyone else. You know, this is my favorite jacket. That's why I used it for pride. It's a marmot jacket that was given to me by HP Enterprise at a work conference. It's probably one of the nicest jackets I own. 
I would never have spent that much money on a jacket. But he literally and spiritually took off his royalty before God and everyone else. You know, pride can masquerade as false dignity, false privilege, false structure, false decorum. I'm not coming against order. The kingdom of God is orderly. But we can make things and we can have false order, false decorum, false things where we don't make room for dancing or praising or shouting or flags or whatever the thing is. David dancing through the streets was not an attention-seeking stunt. It was a return to childlike authenticity. You know, the second time I went to Cambodia in 2008, we were doing a youth conference, a worship conference in uh, the capital city, and many of the young people that came were from villages in provinces all over Cambodia. Many of them had never left their own village. Many of them were working full-time in the rice fields from the age of eight or nine. And they came, and we experienced liberty and praise like I had never seen before. I mean, healings and deliverances and repentance from national sin and just the manifest presence of God was so strong you could barely stand in this place. Hours went by and it seemed like minutes. Amazing. And I return home. This is 2008. My wife is pregnant with Aaron, our first child. We're wrestling with some difficult things because we're about to go to one income and the recession is just hitting and we're having setbacks at work. And there's real threats that it seems to my income and to the, just the, the health, the vitality of our company and our business that I was working for at the time. Um, and I, was, I had a lot of anxiety over it. And Michelle was working, um, she was working as a, a preschool director in, out in Shandon for Community Action Partnership. And the, she was getting up long before dawn, before I it was... And she was out there, you know, at five o'clock in the morning. And so I had my mornings to myself. And I'd put worship on and before I heading into work. And I remember in a few weeks after I'd gotten back, I remember there was worship going on in the house and I was getting ready and I had this feelings of anxiety. And all of a sudden I had this picture of my head and I was thinking of all these young people in Cambodia praising and with just, just radical liberty in the presence of God. And I heard just God whispered to me, he said, Jeff, would you, would you dance before me? And I knew two things in that moment. One, I would end up doing it. And two, I really didn't want to. <laughs> and that's, I am ashamed to admit it, right? When you realize that you have are so in a place of such self-protection, you are embarrassed when nobody else is around. I was embarrassed before the Lord, who sees me anyway. Right? I, there, there's, I can hide nothing, and yet I'm embarrassed, and nobody else is around. 
There is nothing more dignified or mature than answering God's call to worship wholeheartedly and authentically. This is why David danced through the streets. And it's also why Michael despised David because of her own sense of dignity and honor and privilege. She remained covered in her own pride, choosing to be alone and away from the celebration, looking down on the move of God. God will never make an idiot out of you. He's not out to embarrass you, but he will call you to come humbly before him and even to be humble in your own sight. Worship uncovers us from our pride. Worship also uncovers us from resentment. Resentment is bitterness over being treated unfairly. Everyone in this room, at one time or another, has been treated unfairly. There's big things and small things, but you have reason, according to this definition, to feel resentment because you could have bitterness over being treated unfairly. David had many reasons to be resentful. He could have thought, I have wasted 20 years of my life wandering after God's promise and his promise. Every time I took a step, it seemed like it got farther away. And every time I took a step, somebody else died. And every time I took a step, my own family was carried away into captivity. And every time I took a step, you know, somebody else came chasing me down and wanting to stone me and wanting to throw me out. He had every reason to feel resentment. For a long period of time, he was not treated fairly. His best friend was murdered. He experienced setback after setback. Every time it seemed like things were finally going his way, another trip up happened. Even his own people took turns despising him. But instead, we read all throughout the Psalms, instead of getting sidelined, In resentment, he rejoiced in the Lord. He bore himself before the Lord. He danced with all his might. You read about, he he poured his heart out in worship, in psalms, all throughout. That's why we have record of his worship, because it's how we worship. This is the way to worship, not to get sidelined and stuck in our stuff, but to come boldly to come wholeheartedly and authentically in worship before him. He danced with all his might. He blessed, even in this story, he made burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And he, radical generosity, he blessed all the people in the name of the Lord. He had every reason to be resentful. But he wasn't. Michael also had reasons to be resentful. She was a pawn that got moved around. If you know her story, Michael was the daughter of King Saul, one of King Saul's daughters, and as David was, was, was uh, experiencing his promotion or his rise to fame, and he was in favor with King Saul, King Saul gave him Michael, one of his daughters, in marriage as his wife. But then when David fell out of favor, King Saul revoked the marriage 
pulled his daughter back and gave her unwillingly to another guy, one of the commanders in his army, Paul Tiel. Then after Saul's family and his men are annihilated and the Philistines are driven out, Michael is taken from Paul Tiel and given back to David. She's moved around. Probably her wishes, her sentiments, not considered. She had reasons to be resentful. But she ended up just wanting her status. That finally, up in this room, in this palace, finally I've got mine and nobody can take it. And she sees David getting undignified and she resents him. All the bitterness over being treated unfairly comes up and you know that you have resentment when you can't celebrate with people. When you look on their blessing, when you look on the promises getting fulfilled and you hurt and ache in bitterness over your thoughts of being treated unfairly and you can't celebrate with people enjoying the fruit of a promise from God. Worship uncovers us from this thick and hot and sweaty coat of resentment. Worship also uncovers us from disappointment. We can talk about disappointment. Most of the times we talk about it casually. Nah, I was disappointed the Dodgers didn't sign Bryce Harper. And instead they chose to sign A.J. Pollock, who's probably a really good outfielder, but um, he was cheaper. Uh, You can be disappointed that your coffee wasn't really hot enough, or you can be disappointed that um, we didn't have a full vocal team today, or you can be disappointed that Pastor Jeff is telling bad jokes again from the pulpit. You can be disappointed about a lot of things. Disappointment can cover small things. It can be used to describe small things, and it can also be used to describe chronic things. Because disappointment is simply displeasure over unfulfilled hopes and expectations. David did feel disappointment many times. You can read it in the Psalms. You can feel his disappointment, but he never got stuck in it. Michael got stuck in disappointment, and it left her cut off from relationship, barren and unfruitful, and without purpose. That is what the pit or getting stuck in disappointment does. If you read in the scripture where it says, and, and to the end of her life, Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The way the context of that is not that God struck her barren. It was that the intimacy of her marriage ended on that day. Getting stuck in disappointment can destroy your relationships because the devil uses it to isolate you where you can be weak and stuck. Disappointment can make you getting stuck there, can leave you barren and unfruitful. And it can leave you without purpose or feeling like you have no purpose. I want to say that getting disappointed is not the problem. David felt disappointed. You and I will probably feel disappointed about something today. But staying disappointed is the problem. 
One practice that I develop just for myself, this is a sidebar, not in scripture, is I give myself permission slips to be disappointed based on the size of the problem. When I used to lose a deal at work, I would give myself a permission slip to be disappointed for a day. That means I could, I could just be disappointed about it, but I knew when that day was up, I would get up and I would rise to meet the next day and rejoice in it because the Lord had said, this is the day that he's made. You can give yourself permission slips to be disappointed over small things, and you can give yourself permission slips to be disappointed over big things. Different sized things can have different amounts of disappointment, and that's okay. But there is an honoring way to grieve through disappointing things before the Lord. Grieving does not mean you don't trust the Lord. It's not either or. It's not either I can grieve through a disappointment or I'm going to believe that God is good. Grieving does not mean you don't trust him. But staying stuck in disappointment does. Grieving through disappointment says, it's not my will, but yours. It's not my timing, it's yours. It's not my sight, but yours. It's not my plans, but yours. It's not my will, but yours. It's not my understanding, but yours. He is our goal. He is our aim. It looks like laying back down our own unmet expectations before him and asking for his vision, his heart. This is what you see David do beautifully. He is after God's own heart. He continually lays down his unmet expectations, disappointments, his setbacks, his obstacles, his sorrows. But his wife, Michael, also faced with disappointments, reason to be resentful, she did not. She held on to her disappointment like a cloak. Disappointment robs people of courage for the future because disappointment doesn't look at tomorrow. It's anchored in yesterday. It's the areas of disappointment can become like dislocated parts of your body. They're still a part of you. They're still alive. They just can't function. And when we quit functioning, disappointment can keep us from seeing God rightly. There's a quote from Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite theologians. He said, worship is the single most powerful force in completing and sustaining the spiritual formation of the whole person. Worship naturally arises from thinking rightly of God on the basis of revealed truth. We say flatly, worship is at once the overall character of the renovated thought life and the only safe place for any human being to stand. Getting stuck in disappointment is what some people hide behind to secretly accuse God of not being faithful. I'm not saying that to point fingers. I'm other than at my own self. We can hold things that are unsaid in our hearts that are very powerful. And when we put off forever our will to authentically and wholeheartedly worship, 
to protect ourselves under disappointment and resentment and pride. We are saying that God is not faithful. Because it protects our offense towards God. Because not everything turns out the way we expect it to, right? Disappointment can clog the wells of our worship. It can put a cap on your joy. Like Proverbs 13, 12, right? It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's like so getting stuck in disappointment can become like a spiritual disease. And why is this so important to address? Well, one, because you and I all face things to be disappointed about. Disappointment is common to women and men. It is common to everyone on earth. But it is not possible to get where God is trying to take you or to take us as a people and as a church without dealing with our issues of disappointment, grieving through them and giving praise on the other side. Disappointment keeps us from believing God's promises. You know, God does not give promises to entice us, to manipulate us, to mislead us. He wasn't playing games with David when he promised that he would become king, even though it took decades of trouble to get there. He's not playing games with your heart either. He doesn't put up false hope and then cause us to crash and burn. He is a loving father. And he presents us with promises to inspire and instill in us the capacity to dream with him. God is the God of promise. That's why there are so many of them in scripture. There are thousands of promises in the Bible. Even back to the beginning, after Adam sinned in the garden, the first thing, what did God do? He promised a redeemer. He had the promise prepared before there was a problem. He is the one who has solutions before we find ourselves in a mess. Everything was thought of ahead of time. He set the stage so that we could be restored in him, forgiven of sin, and healed in our sense of identity and purpose. Promises are the invitation of God into a relational journey where together we labor to see things happen in the earth that reveal his nature. It brings glory to him. Our amens in the waiting bring glory to him. Our amens and our willing to our willingness to endure, to be patient, to pursue, to continue to walk forward, to continue to walk through. These reveal his nature and give glory to him. Ushers, can you help me with communion and pass that communion out as, I've, as we uh, move towards just a time of communion and worship? This really was one way to look at Jesus' mission, is to reveal our heavenly Father as Father, to reveal the Father. That's why Jesus said, everything I see you do, that's what I do. Everything I hear you say, that's what I'm saying. Everything that Jesus says to you is because he heard the Father say it in heaven. 
Jesus came to reveal the Father. And his desire, God's desire, is to work through sons and daughters. David was a son of promise, brought along through decades of trouble before he inherited or stepped into the culmination of that promise. Some stuff was brought on him, some stuff he caused himself, but he was a son of promise. You know, the ambition of God the Father is to be revealed as God the Father. He could reveal himself as many other things on his own, but it takes a child to reveal the nature of a father. A father can't reveal himself as father by himself. There has to be evidence somewhere. Just as a creator would create to demonstrate his creativity, so a father's effect on the well-being of you and I on a son, on a daughter, is what gives proof that God actually is a perfect and wonderful and glorious heavenly father. He is revealed for who he is as father through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And through you and I as sons and daughters of promise. That as we walk after and we pursue after and we pray through and we declare things and we decree things and we command things and we bind things and we loose things and we proclaim things and we praise through things and we refuse to get stuck, we refuse to get sidelined, we may give ourselves permission to be disappointed for a time, but we will not put on disappointment, resentment, and pride and hold it like a cloak around us. You are living and breathing because when the impossibilities of life yield to a son or a daughter of promise, the Father is revealed and glorified. He wants the mark of who you are in Him to be seen for what it is. Look at the list of impossibilities in the life of David. They all yielded to the promise of God in David's life. He never got stuck. He let his worship confess humility and God's goodness and his own sin. He let worship uncover himself from his own pride, from reasons to be resentful, and for the causes of his disappointments. His worship earnestly pursued God's own heart. And I want to ask, do you know the deception The deception of covering ourselves in pride and resentment and disappointment. You know what the deception is? Is that God in Jesus Christ can't see them. He doesn't see these things covering us. The only people who sees this stuff is us. He sees the real you. He sees the real Jeff. He sees the redeemed me. He, re- he, he sees the perfected me in Christ Jesus. He sees the son of promise. He sees my giftings. He sees the things I've done with it. He sees, oh, okay. He sees my scars that have been healed. But he sees the real me. 
He doesn't see this stuff. Like back in that room when I'm embarrassed, when no one's around. We're the only ones that carry around and see the stuff. The real you has been invited to the table to sit and dine as an honored son or daughter with our heavenly father. This is the table, the table of promise. When Jesus said, this is my body, it's been broken for you. He took the things that were to be our suffering and our, what was owed to us because of sin, because the wages of sin are death and destruction. He took all of that and he not only took it on himself, but he turned that into the very thing that nourishes us, sustains us, and gives us promise that he will always come for us, that he will always nourish us, that he will always give us the bread of life in Christ Jesus, that he will literally be broken himself. He was broken so that he could be the bread of life for you and me. That's what we eat together today. And he took the cup and he shared it with his disciples. And he said, this is my blood. This is the cup really that only I can drink from. This is my cup. But I am sharing it with you not the suffering of it all the time. I'm, I'm sharing the forgiveness of it, the mercy in it. And he's saying that every time and every day, he is inviting us to drink from this cup of promise, this cup of covenant that we know, that we know we are forgiven, that we know that the blood of Jesus has covered and has remitted sin, has set us free, and contains all the promises. We can dr drink from the cup of promise every day. That's what we drink to. So as we move into worship, I encourage you, let's worship together. Let your true self be in worship today. Let your authentic and wholehearted worship uncover you from pride, from resentment, and from disappointment that we can pursue God wholeheartedly and see him revealed and see his promises come to pass.